We're going to start by reading the passage together. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1 to verse 14. I'll read. You can follow along in your copy of the scriptures. The Word of God says this, Jeremiah 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah in the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the king of the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. I know pastors who regularly adjust their preaching schedule depending on what's going on in the civic calendar of the United States of America. If you've been around Emmanuel for any length of time, you know that we don't normally do that. We normally just sort of have a, a series or a book and we just sort of plow through. Many of my friends who take the opposite view, they preach a special sermon on Memorial Day and Labor Day, a special sermon on Mother's Day and Father's Day, a special sermon on Thanksgiving and on Christmas. And uh, before long, the calendar just starts to fill up. And many of them would include the 4th of July. Uh, even when it doesn't fall on a Sunday, they would include the 4th of July in that sort of preaching calendar. It's interesting to me that many of these guys, many of my friends who do this would say, 
We don't follow a, a church calendar. We don't use any sort of liturgy, but instead they just sort of follow Hallmark. And whatever the greeting card season is, that's sort of what they're preaching on. And they really are using a liturgy of sorts. It's just sort of the civic calendar of the nation in which they live. So we don't want to do that. The things that we're attending to on a Sunday morning when we open the Word of God are ultimate and eternal things. They're more ultimate and they're more eternal and they're more lasting and they're more true than whatever holiday card Hallmark is trying to sell you in any particular season. Another reason we don't usually do that here at Emmanuel, is that in the providence of God, when you make the commitment to preach through the scriptures, to do your best to declare the whole counsel of God, you regularly and routinely bump up against passages in a surprisingly timely manner. And I think that's true for our passage this morning. As we think about this letter that Jeremiah wrote to these exiles, Jeremiah 29, what a perfect passage for people living in the United States of America, celebrating the 4th of July today, which I fully intend to do after church. This is a beautiful passage to think about on the 4th of July for us this morning. So let me start by giving you just a little bit of background. Let's rewind the tape to the year 597 B.C. In the year 597, the Babylonians deposed and deported a man a king named Jeconiah, and they put Zedekiah on the throne of Judah. We've done a bit of skipping around in the book of Jeremiah, but if you go back to Jeremiah 24, verse 1, we read this. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim. Jeconiah is sometimes called or referred to as Jehoiakim. So it's Jeconiah Jehoiakim, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen, the metal workers, and he had them brought to Babylon. This gets a little bit confusing, but it is important to try to get your bearings. The Babylonians did not march only once against Judah and Jerusalem. There was a final, full, cataclysmic defeat of Judah by the Babylonians in the year 580. Six, But they had been there before. They had besieged the city before. They had tried to take the city before. And in the year 597, they conquered the city. They didn't burn it to the ground like they did later in 586. But in 597, they conquered the city. They took the sitting king, Jeconiah or Jehoiakim, and they hauled him off to exile in Babylon. And we read in chapter 29 about some of the other people, the officials and uh, the, the silversmiths, the metals uh, workers, the, the educated folks, all these people they hauled off to exile in Babylon. It was sort of a, a first round of exile for God's people. And you read that and you say, well, why didn't they just kill him? They wanted the other guy on the throne. Why didn't they just kill the king and put the guy on the throne that they wanted? And the answer is something that you see or you used to see in Baptist churches in the past. I don't know this. I haven't asked anyone, but I would bet that at some point in time, Emmanuel Baptist Church had a trophy display somewhere in this building. Softball trophies, basketball trophies, different things that the church had competed on, and churches would win these trophies, and they would set them up, and we would look at those trophies and say, we beat the Methodists. We beat First Baptist. We beat the guys across town. We won first place in this. That's what Nebuchadnezzar was doing with the king of Judah. Rather than kill him, 
and just be done with him. He hauled him back to Babylon and put him on display like a trophy. And he did this with other kings of other nations. He did this with Jeconiah. He took him back and he took care of him, ironically, and let him live a reasonably prosperous life to say, look how great I am, King Nebuchadnezzar. I've conquered all these people and I brought their kings back as trophies. So that was 597. After a few years, something happened. False prophets started to pop up, and we talked about this last week, and false prophets like Hananiah were predicting the end of the exile in two years. So last week we looked at Jeremiah 27 and 28, and we talked about this fisticuffs, this fight, this argy-bargy between Jeremiah and Hananiah, and they just get into it. And Hananiah pipes up, and he's one of the prosperity prophets, and he says, look, we've been gone a couple of years. The people have been gone. They're coming back in two years. We're almost done with this exile business. And Jeremiah pipes up, and he says, you've lost your mind. You're off your rocker. We said at the outset, 70 years of exile. It's not even close. And Jeremiah and Hananiah have this debate in Jerusalem in the temple. Is it going to be two more years or is it going to be 60-some more years? And they're arguing back and forth. It's in Jerusalem. But that debate, because people are traveling, it makes its way all the way to Babylon. The people in Babylon are desperate. They're desperate. They're miserable. They really, really hope that Hananiah is right and that in two years they're going to get to come home. There starts to be some confusion about how long they're going to be stuck in Babylon, stuck in exile. And so Jeremiah tries to set the record straight. He sends several letters, we're looking at one of them, to the exiles in Babylon, and he's telling them that the exile would end in 70, not two, but in 70 years. That's the original time that God had promised, and that's what the Lord was sticking to. If you look at verse 1, these are the words of the letter Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and the priests and the prophets and all the people that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. It's carried by two men, verse 3, Elisah and Gemariah. We don't know a lot about these guys, but most think that they're pretty, pretty solid men and they're trusted and they take this letter from Jerusalem to Babylon. It's important to understand, verse 8, 9, and 10, if you just jump into the middle of the letter, that through Jeremiah, God is telling his people, all those folks telling you two more years are liars. Hananiah is a liar. If you keep reading in chapter 20, 29, you'll meet a man named Shemaiah. He's a liar. They say that they're speaking for the Lord, but the Lord says through Jeremiah, I didn't send those men to speak to you. They're liars. It's not going to be two more years. It's going to be 70 years. Now, on the surface of it, that's kind of a depressing message. They all wanted two more years. And through Jeremiah, the Lord is saying, no, it's going to be 70 more years. Here's the big idea of this passage. The Word of God offers hope to those who are suffering. This news about two years and 70 years wasn't exactly what they wanted to hear. Nevertheless, the word of God gives hope to those who are suffering. Look at verse 1. These are the words of the letter Jeremiah the prophet sent. 
Jeremiah sat down, he wrote the letter, they're his words, and he sent it to the people. But it's not just a letter from Jeremiah. Look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts. This is not just Jeremiah's well wishes to the exiles. This is a message from Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. It's God's words to these exiles. And they're words that give hope in the midst of suffering. Some of you this morning are in the midst of experiencing suffering to some degree or another. Maybe it's you and your life personally or maybe it's somebody in your family close to you and you're close enough to be wrapped up in it, but you're experiencing some degree, some measure of suffering this morning and you need hope. Some of you say, you know what? Life's pretty good right now. COVID's over, back to work. Summertime in Odessa, and the high is in the 80s. We're getting rain every day. This is the greatest summer of all time. I don't know what you're talking about with suffering, and you know as well as I know that you could just be one unexpected phone call away from suffering being very, very real in your life. I pray that you're not, but you know, and I know that that could be true. We suffer in this world, and when we suffer, we need hope. We need a word from the Lord that will give us hope and courage and confidence. These people in exile in Babylon are suffering. I've never gone through anything remotely like what they went through, and so I don't know that I have words to describe it fairly. But I think it's safe to say that it's a reasonably traumatic event to have your nation and your city besieged by a world superpower, many of your family and friends slaughtered, and then to be hauled off into exile in a foreign country, you don't know the language, you don't like the food, you don't know the customs, everything's different, and you just want to go back to where you're from. These people have suffered. They've suffered greatly. Jeremiah's writing, the Lord is speaking to them to give them hope. I tried to put myself in their shoes this week and to think, what would it be like to experience this sort of suffering? It made me think of a, a country song. There's a, a country artist named Jason Isbell. To my knowledge, he's not a believer. I know from social media that we don't agree politically on much at all. But he's written a song, and this song came to mind. He wrote a song, and part of the song says, you thought God was an architect, but now you know he's something like a pipe bomb ready to blow. That's a blasphemous line on the face of it. The Bible would never describe the Lord as a pipe bomb. But can we just be honest enough to admit that that's how many people, many of God's people throughout history have felt? Think about the story of Joseph. Have you ever read the story of Joseph in the back half of the book of Genesis? It starts off and Joseph is thinking, God is the greatest architect of all. I'm the favorite son. I got the nicest robe. Everything's great for me. And then the pipe bomb goes off. And his brothers beat him and they sell him into slavery and he ends up in Egypt and they throw him in prison for something that he didn't do. He's falsely accused and they leave him there to rot for several years. That's pipe bomb scenario. But then he gets out and then he realizes, no, God is an architect and he did have a plan and there was a purpose and a design in this. Could that be also true of the story of Job? Job starts off gangbusters. He's rich, he's wealthy, he's got a great family. People want to be him until they don't. 
And he doesn't have any of those things. And the proverbial pipe bomb goes off. And Job wakes up one day and says, what in the world has happened? I don't understand this. And then at the end of the book, things come full circle. And he sees partially God's plan in his life. Not fully, but partially. That could be true of the the nation of Israel. Right? They end up going down to Egypt. And Joseph is able to provide for them. And they say, God, you had a great plan in this. What a great architect you are. But then they're enslaved. And the pipe bomb goes off. But then God rescues them. And they say, oh, it was a great plan after all. And then the pipe bomb goes off again. And they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then they get to go into the land. And they say, God, your plan was good. We're finally in here in the land. And then you get to the book of Judges. If there was ever a pipe bomb in the Bible, it's the book of Judges. I mean, everything goes crazy. And the people are saying, God, why did you bring us into this land at all? What is happening to us as your people? And then God raises up David, and everything seems to fall into place. Oh, this is what God was doing. It it makes a little bit of sense now. But then David and Solomon die, and the nation falls into civil war, and it's just chaos again. Eventually, they end up in exile. These people are living in pipe bomb territory, and they're wondering, God, Are you an architect? Are you a good, sovereign, all-controlling father? Or is life just chaotic and all that we can expect is suffering? Those are the kind of thoughts living in the hearts of God's people when they read this letter. And this letter is written to give hope to those who are suffering. God's word gives hope to those who are suffering. Let's just talk about how that happens and why that happens. Number one. The word of God is certain because of the sovereignty of God. When God gives a word to his people, it is sure, it is certain, it is unflinching and unchanging because the God who speaks that word is sovereign over all things. Look at verse 1. Verse 1, down at the end of verse 1, says that Nebuchadnezzar had taken these people into exile. Who was responsible for taking the people into exile? Well, verse 1 would suggest it was Nebuchadnezzar. Morally, he led the army. He conquered the city. He dethroned and deposed Jeconiah. He put Zedekiah on the throne, and he took all these people into exile. So we say, well, Nebuchadnezzar was responsible. But look with me, if you will, at verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. The Lord says he sent them into exile. It wasn't just Nebuchadnezzar who did it. It was the Lord who did it. Look at verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. He doesn't just pawn it off on Nebuchadnezzar. Seek the welfare of the city where Nebuchadnezzar drug you, where he exiled you. He says, seek the welfare of the city where I sent you. Verse 14. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you. God is reminding his people that he is in complete control of all things. All nations, all kingdoms, all wars, all battles, all exiles, all victories, all defeats. He is in control of all of it. He is absolutely sovereign. He refers to himself in this passage twice, verse 4 and verse 8, as the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. You're not talking about the 
the guy or the gal that stands at the front of the restaurant and walks you to your table. He's talking about the armies of heaven. He is Yahweh, the commander of all the forces and all the armies of heaven. He is the sovereign Lord, and he is in control of your life. Whether you feel like his plan as an architect is playing out perfectly, or whether you feel like life is just in pipe bomb mode, God is sovereign over your circumstances. God makes plan A without giving consideration to plan B. He just makes a plan, and that's what he's going to do. When he writes to his people here, he's not just wishing them well. He's not just sending them positive vibes and thoughts. Hope you're doing good. Miss you. Hope we get to see each other soon. He's not saying this would be the best case scenario of how things work out. He's reminding his people that he's completely sovereign over their lives and sovereign over their suffering. And when he speaks a word to them, it is sure and it is certain because he will see it through. He's reminding his people that he's sovereign. Secondly, the word of God turns mourners into missionaries. This is verse 5, 6, and 7. I think it's the heart of this letter. It's the part of this letter where the Lord, through Jeremiah, tells the people what he actually wants them to do. He's saying to them, I sent you there. Don't just blame Nebuchadnezzar. I sent you there. You want to blame somebody? Blame me. Blame the Lord. I sent you there. You're not going to be there for two years. Don't get your hopes up. This is one of those times where God is honest with his people and he says, you know what? It's going to get worse before it gets better. You're not coming home in two years. Seventy years. What does he want them to do for 70 years? Well, he says, build a house. Plant a garden. And join the PTO at school. And apply to the Rotary Club. And, you know, run for school board. Coach Little League. Be involved in your community. He doesn't want them to become Babylonians. He wants them to be Hebrews, but he wants them to be good citizens in the place where they live. What he doesn't want them to do is sit around for 65, 70 years throwing a pity party, feeling sorry for themselves, and talking about how good things used to be. Buy a house. Renovate it. Plant a vegetable garden. Grow tomatoes in Babylon. Like, just live your life. Live on mission for the Lord. Don't just sit and feel sorry for yourself. This is something I think is relatively important for people who live in Odessa, Texas. Odessa, Texas is a unique place on planet Earth. Can we all agree on that? It's a unique place to live. This is the only place I have ever lived when the vast majority of the people I know in this place have an exit plan for how they're going to get out of this place. It might be a short-term exit plan, like tomorrow I'd like to leave, or it might be a long-term exit plan, I'd like to leave someday. But everybody sort of has this sense of, I don't belong here, right? That's a common thing in Odessa, Texas. And some people are born here, and they say, I was born here, I cannot wait to get out of here. 
soon as I can get out of here. Some people aren't born here. They move here for work and they say, well, it's not home. I mean, I'm here for a job or I'm here for this or I'm here for a window, but at some point I got to get out of here and I got to go home. Everybody has an exit plan. Nobody feels like they belong here. I'm not trying to say to you that our lives in Odessa, Texas are as bad and as miserable and as filled with suffering as these exiles who got hauled off to Babylon. I'm not trying to say that to you. I am saying to you that there's a lot of people who live in Odessa, Texas, just sitting around throwing a pity party for the fact that they live in Odessa, Texas, longing and waiting for the day when they can get out of here. And I think if Jeremiah were to write a letter to us, he would say, you know what, why don't you just buy a house and fix it up? And why don't you get involved in what your kids are doing in the community? And, you know, why don't you join the Rotary Club or whatever, run for school board or run for the the PTO president or find something to do in your community that would make it a better place. Don't become like everyone in the world, but you've got to live in the world, and so be salt and be light. Essentially, what Jeremiah is calling these people to do is quit mourning and be a missionary. God sent you there. You understand that if the sovereignty of God covers the exiles being hauled to Babylon, it certainly covers you and me living in Odessa, Texas. Now look, I know that people leave Odessa. People leave Odessa all the time. I I keep a running list on my computer of people who move out of the area from our church. It's the most depressing thing about being a pastor in Odessa is people just say, well, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, and it's just a constant drip of people. I understand that, and I'm not mad at you if you leave. This is what I'm saying. As long as you're here, don't mourn about it. Be a missionary. Trust in the sovereignty of God. Understand that the Lord has placed you here and now for a reason. That God's not up in heaven saying, oh my goodness, I feel so bad that so-and-so got stuck in Odessa. There's no pity party. There's just trust in the sovereignty of God and a resolve not to mourn, but to live our lives on mission. This is what we read in Acts chapter 17, verse 26. We read this earlier. Acts 17, 26 says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That includes Odessa, and that includes you if you live here now. Now, in God's plan, you may not be in Odessa long. That's fine. But you're here now, so don't mourn about it. Look, this is why in our church vision statement, the order of these things is very important. Our church vision statement says this. I'll put it up on the screen. We believe that God is with us for his glory, number one. That's above all things. God's with us for his own glory, for the world, meaning the reach of our mission and the reach of our evangelistic and discipleship efforts is global. It's not limited here. But we also believe that God is with us for the city, that's Odessa, and for you. Why do we say in that statement that we believe God is with us for the city, for Odessa, Texas? Well, it's because we believe Acts chapter 17. It's because we believe Jeremiah 29. We believe that God doesn't want us, if we live in Odessa, Texas, to sit around mourning about it, but to actually live on mission here and now. This is who we believe we are as a church, a gathered, called-out group of people who enjoy the presence of God so that he would be glorified, that the ends of the earth might be reached, that Odessa might be blessed with people who live as salt and light, and that you might grow as a disciple 
of Jesus Christ. Now, that's Odessa. Let's just back it out to the United States very quickly. Not only do we live in Odessa, but we live in the United States of America. And this evening, when the sun starts to go down, I'll be ready to stand up and we'll sing Lee Greenwood and we'll blow stuff up in the air and our bellies will be full from homemade ice cream and whatever you grilled out, it's going to be great. Okay? All that's great. But I'm also aware of the fact that living in the United States of America in the year 2021, sometimes you turn on the TV and you say, where do I live? What is happening? There's times you look at your country and you say, I don't even recognize this place. I don't, I don't even recognize the things that are promoted and celebrated and advocated and shoved down our throats. I don't understand why they don't get rid of this law or they don't change that law. You look around and you say, what in the world is going on? Well, the Bible recognizes that. And the Bible says that in this world, you're a stranger, you're in exile, you're a sojourner, you're just passing through. Your citizenship is in heaven, and it's from heaven that you await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, in the sovereignty of God, he's put you here. Odessa, Texas, the United States of America. You can sit around and mourn and gripe and throw a pity party and talk about, well, things used to be so much better in the good old days, and now they're so terrible, all these young people ruining the nation. And You can just mourn about it and whine about it, or you can live as a missionary in the place that the Lord God has put you. All of this is rooted in we believe that God is sovereign. We don't believe that he wants us to live our lives mourning the time and the place that we live, but living as missionaries in the time and the place that we live. So the word of God turns mourners into missionaries. Thirdly, the word of God reminds us of the goodness of God. He's good. Sometimes we forget that, especially when we're suffering, especially when it feels like life is just a pipe bomb that's gone off on you and everything's chaotic. Look what God says to his people. Maybe the most famous verse in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Some of you have it on a coffee cup. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare or for good, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. There's no doubt about it. That is a precious promise from the Lord to his people. That's a good thing to remind yourself of when you're suffering and when life is crazy. God has plans for his people. You may question that in the moment of suffering, but God has plans, and they're good plans. However, that verse usually gets yanked right out of Jeremiah 29 and gets slapped on a coffee cup or a T-shirt or a social media post is if God exists as some sort of cosmic butler to make your life nice and easy and comfortable and pleasant. Listen, anybody who yanks Jeremiah 29, 11 out of this chapter and presents it to you in some sort of health and wealth, prosperity, name it, claim it type way is obviously not sent by the Lord and they're a liar like Hananiah and Shemaiah. I mean, they're a false teacher. God said this. It's a true and a precious promise, but he said it to people who were in exile and who were going to be there for six more decades. This wasn't, I'll do whatever you want. I'll make it easier. You just pray and it'll happen. Easy peasy, magic. If that's all there was, they'd be home four years ago. It's not how it works. It's not a health and wealth, prosperity, name it, claim it type thing. It is a precious promise of God. It's the kind of promise that you read in the book of Psalms, Psalm 119. 
It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. He's afflicted, and God's word becomes precious to him, and he reminds himself that God's word is good. We skipped over the quote from Christopher Wright. It's worth me sharing it with you. Christopher Wright says this, Jeremiah 29, 11, probably ranks as one of the most quoted and most claimed promises of the Bible. It's found in countless calendars, pretty pictures, and sacred ornaments. It is rightly trusted as a very precious word of assurance from God, but do we take note of its context? Be careful with a verse like this, and be careful with somebody who will quote a verse like this, and they'll sound very biblical. They'll have a verse, they'll have an address, it sounds good. You got to pay attention to what's happening here. This promise reminds God's people of his goodness. Lastly, one more thought. The word of God moves us to humble repentance. Humble repentance. When you look at Jeremiah 29, 12, 13, 14, it is essentially a quotation from the book of Deuteronomy. There's really nothing new at the end of this letter. Right, Jeremiah has told them, this is what I want you to do while you're living in exile. Build a house, plant a garden, live, don't mourn, be a missionary. But in 70 years, he is going to bring them back. And he talks about what that day will be like. And he quotes the book of Deuteronomy. He calls the people to repent of their sin. He calls them to seek the Lord with all of their heart. Not to chase after idols, not to chase after prosperity, not to chase after just the idea of going home, but to seek the Lord. What Jeremiah wants from the people, and really it's what the Lord wants from his people because it's the Lord speaking through Jeremiah. He wants them to not just come home, but he wants them to be changed people when they come home. Changed when they come home. Earlier we talked about the year 597. And I told you that 597 was this first conquering of Jerusalem and uh, Jeconiah was deposed and some of the important people were deposed. You know, most historians think that in that first wave of exiles, there was a young man named Daniel and three of his friends who were hauled out of Jerusalem and taken to Babylon. And Daniel was among the people living in Babylon who heard these rumblings of two more years might we really get to go home in two more years? We know from reading the book of Daniel that Daniel read the book of Jeremiah. He read this letter from Jeremiah. And towards the end of his life when he was an old man, Daniel started to crunch the numbers and he realized, yeah, that two-year stuff has come and gone. But he understood we're coming up on 70 years it was almost time to go home. What would you do if you were Daniel and you're living in exile all these years and you're reading Jeremiah and you look at the calendar and you get your fingers and your toes out and you're, you say, it's almost time. I'd probably pack a bag. Daniel was clearly a man who trusted in the Lord and his promises and his sovereignty. Say, said, it's time to pack a bag. Let's go home. That is not the first thing Daniel did. Daniel 9 is the most moving prayer of humble repentance maybe in the entire Bible. Why did he do that? Why didn't he just go pack a bag and say, oh, it's time, let's go home? It's because he read Jeremiah 29, verse 12, 13, 14, quoting the book of Deuteronomy, saying, I don't just want you to come home, but I want you to come home changed. I want you to be different. 
I want you to humbly turn from your sin, and I want you to seek me. Listen, for people who live in Odessa, Texas, in the United States in the year 2021, that is the very simple call on our lives. It is to turn from sin, and it is to seek the Lord God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do we do that? Well, on this side of the cross, we do it through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jeremiah lived on the front end of the cross. We'll look next week at Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah was looking forward to a new covenant. You and I don't look forward to it. We look back to it. It's been established in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this new covenant that God has made with his people. But even in this new covenant, the call on our lives is exactly the same. It's to turn from sin, acknowledge our sin, to run from it, and to run to the Lord Jesus Christ who lived for us, who died for us, who rose for us, and who has promised to come back for us in the fullness of time and to bring us into his eternal kingdom. We long for that day. The way you get ready for that day is not by packing a bag. It's not by arguing about prophecy charts. It's by repenting of your sin and seeking the Lord Jesus Christ. And until he comes, you keep doing that, and you resolve, I'm not going to live as a mourner right now, but I'm going to trust in the goodness and the sovereignty of God, and I'm going to live my life on mission for him until he calls me home.